the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, September 7th. I'm Kieran Hancock and this week I'm joined in studio by Lucinda Creighton to talk about her move from politics into business. In the second half of the show, we'll have the latest in our series of profiles of nominees for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards. And don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. But first to Lucinda Creighton. First elected to the Dáil in 2007 for Fine Gael, she was our Minister for Europe between 2011 and mid-2013, before being expelled from the party when she defied the party whip by voting against the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill. She later went on to co-found and become the first leader of Renewa Ireland. She lost her Dublin-based seat in February's general election as Renewa was wiped out and has since set up a business advisory group called Vulcan Consulting. Lucinda, welcome to the show. I guess um, it must have been very difficult losing your seat uh, in Dublin based out, particularly as you were leader of a, of a party, a new party with great ambitions and so forth. Um, what was what was that like and how much time do you get to sort of adjust to your new life? I mean, how long do you get before you have to clear out your desk? Oh, um, of course, it was difficult. Um, it, I mean, I, when you take risks, I guess, in politics, you have to be prepared for the consequences. And I was, to a large extent, prepared for the consequences. But having said that, I didn't necessarily expect that I would lose my seat. Um, but I, I'm pretty resilient. I just sort of, you know, I, I remember looking at the tallies that morning. I said I wouldn't look at them until about midday, but, you know, <laughs> the curious yourself. mind. And uh, I looked at them and I knew immediately I was going to lose my seat. So I went out for a run um, down Sandy Mount Strand and I came back and I said, right, well, you know, that's it. Um, got to start thinking about moving on and, you know, about the future. Um, and uh, I think I had two weeks to clear out my office, but I did it probably I, I, certainly that week, um, you know, I guess when you when you have to move on, you just you kind of you're better off to just get on with it. You mm. know, so that's what I did. And you have to choose a new career and you didn't hang around because Vulcan Consulting, your new business, was actually set up in March. Yeah. Two weeks uh, later. So, I, I mean, I, I set it up, I guess, um, really because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I thought, well, if opportunities come along, I'm as well to have um, established a limited company, um, set up a bank account and um, and see, you know, what, what's on offer before I really make a decision. And I had a lot of chats with people. Um, I met a lot of people for coffee um, over the following couple of months. And um, it kind of became clear to me fairly quickly that I didn't particularly want to go in-house anywhere, at least not yet. Um, and that probably the best way for me to move forward would be to um, to try to set up my own business and um, at the very least, um, you know, ensure that I had an income out of it, but but possibly, would you know, trying to aim to do something bigger. Um, and that's kind of where I am now that's with Vulcan. Now, yeah. Yeah. So tell us about Vulcan. I mean, what, what does it do? Um, well, essentially, Vulcan Consulting is, is really me at the moment. Um, and it's an advisory service on really everything to do with the European Union, EU regulation, EU policy, um, from a very political perspective. So what a lot of companies have are um, very talented legal advisors, um, you know, accountancy firms and so on. A lot of them have PR advice, media advice, communications advice, but what they don't necessarily have, and I've I, I found this a lot, particularly with American companies, is they don't really understand the machinations of Brussels. They don't really understand the politics that's driving change, regulatory change at EU level. Um, and they need that advice. And that's something that I understand very well because I've been obviously working in that environment 
as Minister for European Affairs, but not just as Minister for European Affairs. I've been involved in European politics since I was about 19 years old. So um, really all my adult life. And why did you choose to be a business advisor as opposed to law? Because, I mean, you are a, a barrister, isn't that right? Well, very simply, I have bills to pay and uh, I'm a barrister um, and a lot of people said, oh, would you not return to the law library? But I had only spent a year uh, in the law library. I would be very much bottom of the food chain. Um, I would have name recognition so that, you know, I could perhaps work my way up um, more quickly than some. But um, I just didn't really fancy going backwards. Um, you know, I, I was at the bar in 2005, 2006, uh, or 2006, 2007. Um, I haven't been back there since I... I was elected to the Dáil and I really just wanted a new departure. Um, and obviously my legal skills, my ne- legal knowledge are very, very helpful in what I'm doing now. But mm. it's it's more international. It's nice to be working outside the country. Um, all of my clients pr- pretty much at the moment um, are international. They're not Irish, um, although, of course, I, I hope to build um, a base here in Dublin as well. But, but essentially what I'm doing is advising multinationals and foreign entities on how to navigate the European bureaucracy. So, um, you know, it's nice, I think, uh, to be to be doing that and to be traveling a bit and, and looking, looking outwards. Yeah. How many clients have you got now? You're six months in. Um, well, I'm not really. I mean, I set up the company in March, but I really didn't start, um, um, you know, gainful employment, if you like, until um, July, August. So I have I have four pretty decent clients at the moment um, and then other tell us who they are? other bits and pieces um, well I've I've client confidentiality agreements at the moment so I haven't put any of that information on my website but um, but I'm working f- for example I'm working with um, a US actually an NGO foreign policy NGO so advising them on um, their operation in, in uh, Europe I'm working with a chemical company um, on issues that they're dealing with I'm working with uh, a tech company um, um, just advising them on on the the EU structures, and I am also now, as of the first of September, uh, a special advisor retained by FIPRA, which is a public affairs company advising on Brexit. So I'll be working with all of their blue chip clients over, uh, globally. They're a global organisation, but they're they're primarily Brussels based um, over the, the the well the foreseeable future. Yeah, uh, I was looking at your website earlier, and it says your expertise in Brexit, global regulatory convergence, technology, pharma. Uh, financial services, aviation, telecoms and energy. That's a, a very wide span. It is, yeah. It's often said of journalists that our, our knowledge is kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, yeah. is, is there something about that with consultants as well? Or, or can you really be an expert in all these areas? Well, you know, I don't pretend to, to offer um, technical expertise on all of those subjects. But what I can do is provide insights um, and strategic advice to companies on how they approach um, the regulatory system, the policy making system, the legal framework um, of the European Union. And that that is, you know, of course, that requires um, detailed research and policy analysis. But but largely it's 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 um, it, it's applicable to, to all companies in all sectors. Um, so it's a specific type of advice um, that is applicable across the board. Yeah, sure. Uh, two big issues, I guess, with Europe at the minute. One is Brexit yeah. and the other, um, I guess, is Apple, is the whole Apple tax affair um, uh, saga. Uh, let's talk about Brexit maybe, uh, first of all. What are, what are you advising your clients in relation to Brexit? 
Well, it, it, or how it do just, you see playing out? It just depends. And I've, I've done some work pro bono with Irish companies um, on small companies on, um, on preparing for, for Brexit if it happens. And I'm not certain that it will happen. Oh, really? No, I'm not. Well, Theresa um, May said Brexit is Brexit. Yeah, but nobody knows what that means. So uh, I think we have to we have to wait and see to some extent. Um, but for certainly for Irish companies, the advice has to be very much about contingency planning, about looking at all of their contracts with the UK, at looking at diversifying markets um, and planning for new restrictions that may come into place. So, for example, the trade minister, the new trade minister um, in um, in the UK has said uh, the, that that there is a strong possibility of reverting to WTO rules. That means new tariffs put in place um, and all of the huge cost implications that that would have for Irish companies. Um, so all of these things have to be factored in and, and really companies need to start scenario planning, looking at all of the different eventualities from you know a clean break um, operating under WTO rules to um, a smooth transition into the um, European e- economic area, which would mean staying in the single market and which would mean, you know, not enormous change as compared to the, the worst case scenarios. Um, it's a long way to go. There's a lot of it mm. to play out, obviously, over the next number of years. Um, and what should the priority for the Irish government be in, in terms of, obviously, we're not going to be directly part of this negotiation, but we're going to be on the fringe. The UK is a yeah. big market for us. Yeah. So we need to ensure that Ireland isn't disadvantaged by whatever arrangement Britain has in the future. Absolutely. Well, the border, obviously, um, with Northern Ireland is absolutely critical and there is no clarity on that. And I suppose if what I would like to see the government doing is firstly liaising really closely with London um, and with Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to ensure that the strategic interests um, of those countries are aligned to, to those of Ireland. Um, and I think there's going to be have, have to be huge resources put into that. Um, I think in the post-Brexit context, if it happens, the government should be really looking at building new alliances as well. And I think that's where we fall down in this country. We're not great at, you know, our usual, as we've seen for the last 10 years, our usual approach is to go to Berlin and say, please, can we have a concession? Please, can we have a deal? Please, can we have an interest rate reduction or whatever it may be? Um, And when it came to tax, to the single market, to the digital single market, the issues of strategic importance to us, um, we've relied on the UK as the, the big voice at the table to make our case the UK may not be there in a few years time so we need to start building new alliances mm. not just with large member states but actually with the smaller countries that have the same um, interests or at least interests which are aligned to ours like for example the Baltic countries the Nordic countries um, Luxembourg Netherlands Are they amenable to that issues. in your experience having, having um, been no, the a way minister in Brussels? I don't think that a lot of the small countries have adapted very well to the larger environment of the EU so 28 member states um, it, it, it takes a lot of effort to build and those and develop and maintain those links. So actually what most countries have done is what Ireland has done and that's look to the big member states to defend their interests. So, you know, keep in with Berlin or keep in with London. Um, but I don't think that's going to work for Ireland in the new in the new lineup. And it won't work for a lot of other countries who have similar, um, you know, priorities to us. So we're going to have to ch- think very differently. Uh, I think it's, it's going to require huge resources and huge energy and effort from government ministers. And I'm not sure that that penny has dropped yet. Right, okay. In your new role... Um, as a consultant, are you effectively a lobbyist now uh, in Leinster House on behalf of your clients? 
No, I haven't. I haven't done any lobbying and I'm hoping that I won't be doing any lobbying. No, I mean, what I'm providing is analysis. I'm writing reports, uh, updates, uh, attending meetings with clients. Um, and that really is my focus. So, so far, um, I haven't done any any lobbying and I don't intend doing any lobbying in the near future. So, OK, let's talk about Apple then. Obviously, uh, huge headlines about this all around the world uh, over the last uh a week or 10 days and um, the, the European Commission has decided that Ireland has to collect some 13 billion euro in back taxes effectively mm. from Apple relating to two entities mm. that were registered here but not uh, didn't have any tax status here. Apple has said it's, uh, it's going to appeal. The government has said it's going to appeal. And you've written a piece on your website saying that this is a far reaching, arguably overreaching decision of the European mm. Commission. Why? Um, well, firstly, um, the the European treaties are very clear that taxation uh, is a matter for uh, individual member states. Um, state aid rules are designed to prevent governments from being protectionist and from giving p- a particular leg up to um, to companies um, that artificially uh, gives them an advantage ahead of other companies. Um, I don't believe that um, favourable taxation er- arrangements for multinational companies investing in Ireland are are, are the equivalent of state aid. Um, I think a lot of lawyers would agree with that analysis. Um, and I think that the European Commission has overreached. I don't believe that it has the authority to um, dictate to the Irish government to impose mm. um, retrospective taxation on Apple. Um, but the, is it right that Apple is able to have two companies in Ireland that effectively have no tax status, uh, that bring in um, no. money profits, generate yeah. profits from sales yeah. in Europe, and a lot of it goes to America for research and development purposes, and some of it is warehoused, uh, if you like, as part of a big cash pile. No, it's not right. And as you know, the the um, the, the rules surrounding uh, the creation of brass plate mm. companies have changed since those arrangements were in place for Apple, and they arguably should never have been in place for Apple or for any other company. Um, but equally, it's not right that Ireland uh, or any EU member state should claim that it has the authority to tax Apple on all of its prop profits uh, generated from research and development that occurs in the United States and manufacturing that occurs in China. Um, I, I don't follow the European Commission's logic that all of that tax is yeah. due in, in Europe. Um, and I think we haven't seen the full detailed ruling from the European Commission. I, I look forward to reading it. Um, but I think that it certainly is uh, an overreach on the part of the Commission. I think that um, I think it's firstly it's wrong to say that that tax should fall due <coughs> entirely in the European Union. Uh, And secondly, ultimately, I don't believe that it's for the European Commission to determine whether Ireland's tax arrangements are fair or appropriate or not. I think, um, you know, the way in which taxation agreements have operated worldwide, it has been through the OECD. Uh, it has been through the G20. There are and significant moves af- afoot um, in both of those entities to try to um, to eliminate the sort of tax avoidance that we have seen from companies like Apple and other companies globally. But why should the European Union um, adopt this approach when other parts of regions of well, the world the don't? Why should the government appeal it? Well, it's going to be appealed anyway. So why would the government not be part of that appeal? Of course, they have to be a party to that, that appeal. It, it directly affects Ireland's capacity. Firstly, if a national authority, uh, tax authority such as the Revenue Commissioners or its equivalent in any, any other member state makes a ruling um, in relation to a specific case or a specific tax scheme, if that ruling 
cannot stand up and can be just overturned by um, the European mm. Commission, then we have a major problem in terms of attracting future foreign direct investment. I think that alone is reason enough for the Irish government to challenge this. I don't believe that the Commission has the authority to overrule or overturn but this a is ruling. A special, of yeah, sure, but this the, is a special arrangement that the revenue commissioners granted Apple. Uh, we only found out about it because there was a US Senate uh, hearing. Um, and we're told, although we're, we can't be sure about this, but we're told that Apple was the only company that had this kind of arrangement that no other company had. I mean, I don't know, maybe from your time in government, you know differently, but um, we're, we're told it's the only one that has this arrangement. So what's the problem? Yeah, we don't know. And that's the truth, because the revenue commissioners um, um, give written uh, rulings to companies on a, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, I'm sure there are other multinationals who have sought rulings from the revenue commissioners, um, and they may not be precisely the same as this one, but I'm sure there are similar ones. Um, you know, there is a. You know, we can we can believe that the reason all these multinational companies come to Ireland is because we're you know we're lovely people and it's a great country and everybody wants to live in Dublin. Um, but actually, you know, the reality is that the that that you know probably seventy five to eighty percent of the reason, if not even a higher percentage, is our tax arrangements. Um, and that's our that's we you know that's our right as a nation to have those tax arrangements in place. Okay. They may be immoral, you may disagree with them, but it's for the Irish government to, d- to decide whether they're appropriate or not. Um, and I think it's a really important principle that the uh, that the Irish government has to defend on behalf of, of the Irish people and the workforce in Apple, the 5,000 people employed in Cork for starters. Sure. Okay, well I mean you were a Minister for European Affairs so you were backwards and forwards to Brussels quite a lot uh, during that time, but two years or so. Um, I mean, is it your view then that there's a bigger issue at play here that they're out to get us? And well, our, our corporate tax arrangements, because let's face it, the French and Germans have been banging on about this for years, haven't they? Well, the French far more than the Germans, in fairness. I mean, um, in fact, Chancellor Merkel came out in the last few days and said that she has concerns about this ruling. So um, certainly the French, um, both the current government in France and the previous government, had a huge agenda when it came to Ireland's tax. Um, that's They're fully entitled to have an agenda. Um, doesn't mean we have to agree with it. Um, but... You know, I don't believe that the European authorities necessarily have a huge agenda when it comes to uh, Ireland's corporate tax. What they want to do is see a greater degree of harmonisation across the European Union when it comes to taxation. I disagree with that. I don't see it as a conspiracy. It's a different philosophy. It's a different approach. Uh, for a country like Ireland and the periphery of Europe, we need tax competition. We have to have we have to have the capacity to create certain advantages for ourselves because, you know, we're not a core European country. Um, and and the UK have always adopted the same position, uh, also being an island on the periphery, a much larger one, granted, um, the likes of Malta, Cyprus, the Baltic states, the Nordic countries. There are a lot of like-minded countries who insist on tax competition in the European Union. So this is a battle that's going to go on. Um, I think that the European Commission is actually, the firstly, the commissioner herself is very zealous and has her own particular agenda. Um, but also, I think it's fair to say that the European Commission is trying to assert itself. It has, you know, it has lost a lot of uh, power, a lot of relevance in EU decision making over the last number of years as, mm. the, as the European Union's gotten bigger and I think the Commission is trying to um, you know trying to be a little bit populist too because look this stuff appeals you know bash American multinationals you know everybody should pay, they should all pay more tax we all agree with that in principle but yeah. you know unfortunately for Ireland we're the country that's sure, in the firing yeah. line So do you think this is the first it's them chipping away at our corporate tax rate uh, and this is the first 
kind of iteration of it? No, I mean, the, the European Commission published um, at least three years ago a proposal on CCCTB, a common consolidated corporate tax base. So there, there are a lot of proposals um, that are doing the rounds which would try to spread the tax benefit um, of multinational corporations in Europe across um, the member states. Of course, that would benefit the big ones and disadvantage the smaller ones. So we will resist it. Um, but look, the, these are just philosophical, mm. ideological yep. Uh, differences that exist, you'll have them in any uh, in any organisation, in any un- union. Uh, but we need to hold firm. We need to appeal this um, because I think that I actually think the Commission will lose uh, and that the that Apple and the government would win. Um, but also, you know, it's important that, as I said at the beginning, that we build strategic alliances and that we don't allow you know one or two member states to determine the direction of the European Union on tax matters. Uh, it's really important for us that we have our voice as well. Do you not wish you were still in politics? be able to debate this uh, in the doll in, in the weeks ahead and have a right old ding dong about it? Well, I mean, not not really. I mean, I was actually walking by Leinster House earlier on kind of feeling a little bit relieved that I wasn't going to be in there for a, a 10 hour debate where people are just going to be, you know, reading off scripts, repeating each other or re- reading out what somebody else has written for them. Um, you know, just Sadly, there's not a huge amount you can affect um, in terms of change uh, in politics. Unless you're in government and you were in government, of course. I was in government, yeah, and I had a fantastic role and I really enjoyed it. But um, did I... You know, change the direction of government policy. Of course, I didn't. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I worked very hard and I really enjoyed it, and I hope that I made some contribution. But, um, but look, you know, I, I believe everything in life happens for a reason. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. I feel, in many ways, quite liberated. Um, I miss elements of it, but I'm still involved. You know, I still have a lot of friends in politics. I'm still following it. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing it a little bit at arm's length. Now, and I have to ask you, do you see a future for Renew? I know you're gone from uh, the leadership of the party. You're, you're not a TD mm-hmm. and so on. You've stepped aside from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a new leader uh, now. Uh, do you think it, it does have a future role to play and it can win all seats in the future? Yeah, I mean, I have huge confidence in John Lahey, the new leader of Renew. I think he's a, he's a fantastic guy. Uh, he has a huge task ahead of him, as do, do, does every everybody in the party. But there is a role um, for um, for a party that stands up for um, for transparency and honesty in politics that isn't afraid um, to challenge, you know, the status quo that isn't cha- afraid to challenge the establishment mm. and also a party that, um, you know, that advocates on behalf of the taxpayer. Um, and 23% flat tax, right? Was, was that fair? I think, it, I think it is. I mean, I wouldn't have stood over it. I wouldn't corporation have, tax rate? I wouldn't have stood over it if I didn't believe so. And I mean, well, we exactly, you, you make the point for me. I mean, we already have a flat tax for corporations and it has served Ireland extremely well. Maybe we need to have a similar approach um, mm. in terms of our citizens and, you know, making life a lot easier for them and creating better living conditions and working conditions for them. Um, but that's a, a, a battle for other people. And are you still a member now. of the party? I am, yes, yeah. Right, OK. So is Lucinda Creighton done with politics? Is it business uh, from here on in or, or, <laughs> or might you return? Well, you never say never, do you? But uh, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing at the moment. Um, it's a great new challenge. And, uh, you know, I hope that Vulcan Consulting will go from strength to strength, that we'll grow. And uh, who knows then what uh, what will happen in the future? All right. You're solo at the minute. When when do you think you might uh, you might need to hire somebody? Um, well, actually, I have just um, I've been fortunate that I have an intern who started with me um, just in the last week and I'm hoping to have a full time position um, in November and uh, and uh, then, you know, perhaps with a view to expanding again in 2017. So it's it's going pretty quickly. 
Okay, Lucinda Creighton, thank you for joining us. We'll take a short break now and return with the second of our profiles of nominees for this year's EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now, welcome back for the second in our series of profiles of nominees for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards. Uh, this week, I'm joined in studio by Leslie Codd of Cod Mushrooms, Louise Grubb, founder of Q1 Scientific in Waterford, and Noel Moran, founder and chief executive of Prepaid Financial Services. I started by asking them to explain a little bit about themselves and their businesses. Hi, Kieran. I'm Louise Grubb. I'm founder and CEO of Q1 Scientific. We're Waterford-based, um, providing services to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, Q1 Scientific, really, the idea from it came from the, the fact that within the pharmaceutical industry at the moment, there's um, quite a lot of pressure on um, the, to try and reduce costs. So with Q1 Scientific, we offer an outsource solution for one aspect of the pharmaceutical manufacturing process, which is stability storage. And essentially what stability storage is, is all pharmaceutical products, when they're manufactured, a certain number of samples are placed on highly controlled temperature and humidity into chambers and then tested on a regular basis so that the final uh, paracetamol that you take is, um, there's a certain batch to that and you can guarantee the, the quality. So we've built initially um, these large chambers that have very highly, uh, highly regulated and then controlled temperature and humidity. And we offer this service uh, to the pharmaceutical industry. We're based in Waterford and we would have most of our business um, uh, in Ireland, so pharmaceutical companies, both from very small to very large. Um, but we are expanding the business at the moment and we also now have quite a few companies that are moving their stability uh, storage to our facility in Waterford. My name is Noel Morden and I'm representing two different companies, actually. The first one is Prepaid Financial Services. Um, Prepaid Financial Services is a regulated entity regulated by the financial regulator in the UK. And we provide payment solutions, I guess, alternative banking solutions. So prepaid cards, corporate cards, current accounts, e-money, online solutions, things like that. And the other company is Ecom Merchant Solutions, uh, based out of Navin. Again, involved in the payment side of things, but for online payments. So what we do at Ecom is facilitate taking payments for retailers or merchants online and making sure those payments get to their bank account. Hi, my name is Leslie Codd. I'm the founder and managing director of Cod Mushrooms. We are based in Tullow County, Carlo, and we grow, market and distribute mushrooms throughout Ireland. Uh, we employ over 200 people and we are opening a facility in the UK uh, in early 17 and we are shareholders in a compost Sub, in a mushroom substrate uh, facility in Balagali in County Tyrone. That will be opened in 2017 as well. Um, our plans are to um, take a reasonable shareholding of the UK market over the next three years and increase employment to 500 and turn over to 50 million. 
Okay, thanks, guys. Um, it sounds like you're all in expansion mode in one sense or another. Maybe, Leslie, we'll just start with yourself because you mentioned your expansion plans for the UK. And obviously, we had this uh, Brexit vote uh, on June 24th, which kind of took us all by surprise. So the UK is going to leave the European Union. Has that in any way affected your plans for the UK? Because when we last spoke at the end of May, you told me about your plans to acquire this business in the UK and to try and capture some market share in Britain. So how has Brexit affected those plans? Uh, Brexit only strengthened those plans. Uh, on the Thursday of the vote, uh, we all went to bed expecting to wake up to see that um, England decided to stay within um, the EU. But uh, as we all know now, it hasn't been that way. The mushroom industry in Ireland has been hugely affected by that decision. Uh, the exchange rate fell off a cliff between 10 and 15 percent since that vote. Uh, margins are tight in the mushroom industry, so uh, most growers would be losing money at this stage. Uh, it strengthens our view that if you supply a significant share of the UK market, you must be based within that market. Let's talk about being an entrepreneur and what it means, what it's all about. Are they are they made? Are they born? What, what do you think, Louise? How did you become an entrepreneur? I suppose a little bit. I, I certainly think that it's something that you just really like doing. You know, I, I can't go into, I can't see a business that are, or even go into a restaurant without thinking, you know, where's the opportunity? Are they making money here? What are they doing here? There's a certain amount of that um, that people, I don't know, you see, um, like I saw the opportunity for Q and Scientific, but I just went and made and You it had happen. a business before that as well, uh, so you weren't coming to it completely uh, as an office. As no, I had another, but the, the first business I started, NutriScience, which was veterinary nutraceuticals, was completely, you know, the first business I ever started. And it was more difficult because I didn't have a track record. I had to raise finance, I had to start the whole thing. But I thought the idea was a good one. And I thought, look, let's go and see this, make it, you know, make it happen. And I suppose what I didn't see was the risk that could be there. I always looked at the risk. Well, the worst that can happen is I'll be back where I started in, in the first place. Um, and I actually love the startup. I'm in the emerging category for, for this uh, competition but um, very much I love that startup phase you know the frantic let's try and pull this all together based on a good idea so so I suppose in a way that's me and that's what I like doing and I hope I'll do it again Noel you actually worked in the banks didn't you I mean you're previously from AIB and, and permanent TSB are, are part of your uh, past as it were so where did the entrepreneurial bug come for yeah, you exactly I'm from a banking background payments background I guess so for me, I don't believe I was born an entrepreneur. I think I just came across an opportunity, to be honest, and I just made the most of that opportunity at a point in time. So that came when I was working for someone else who was in a similar type industry, but very different different focus. Uh, they went into administration back in 2007 when the crunch came in the UK, and I just decided to take a chance and set up similar type business with just a very different focus on different target market. And what was your big break, um, as it were? Because it must be that you had to get regulated, and I, I presume you had to get the likes of uh, MasterCard and, and banks and so on on board yeah, as well. Yeah, we didn't have to do all of that initially, I guess, because you can work with third parties as well to provide that. We've developed the service over the years, and now we do it all in-house. Mm. Um, but initially, we worked with third parties to provide that to us. So when we started out, we were only providing part of the value chain. So I guess the big break, to be honest, came when we got our first client, um, because when you start out, I suppose, you know, you're starting into a relatively unknown and while the idea might be great and you might think you have a great business idea, at the end of the day, if you can't get customers and sign up the customers... Oh, what was the big break? Who was the big client? It wasn't a big client, to be honest. It was just a, a relatively small client at the time, to be honest, but it certainly gave us three or four months of runway. Um, and it meant that we could keep going for another three or four months. We then got another client, a third one, a fourth one, and 
over the period of three or four years it built up and we now have a significant yeah. business and we're one of the main providers in Europe now for what we provide for MasterCard so it's grown relatively quickly Okay, Leslie, yours is a family concern you're in this business with your brother uh, Raymond but I'm just wondering did you always dream of producing mushrooms or how, how did that come about you? No, I suppose um, it was never uh, really what we would do but it was always that we would be in business uh, we started the business when I was 17 And, and you uh, are from a farming background, aren't you? From an agricultural background and uh, so there was always kind of a love of, pr- of producing a food product so it... it um, I suppose it married up quite well. Um, one common trait I see amongst entrepreneurs is they're eternal optimists. I suppose we have to pay people to keep ourselves grounded and re, uh, back to reality. But uh, just as Louise said, you, we would have a different aspect. We'd go into a restaurant and we'd be scanning around, adding up how many seats there is, how many's there, seeing what turnover they have. It would be a common trait amongst Seeing where to get their mushrooms, not it? Possibly <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you're nearly 30 years at it. I think it was 1989 was, was, up, yeah. was, was your start, yeah. And mushrooms, it's a tough, tough business, isn't it? I mean, really tight margins. I guess it's all about volumes uh, as well as quality, obviously, but volume is the is the key thing. Um, and, you know, prices, uh, it's a commodity business, I guess. How do you keep going over over the space of 30 years in the one industry? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting. It's been tough. It's... Um, made us hard I suppose you, you you have to be brutal on cost control you have to make sure that you take care of your customer base uh, you're dealing with a lot of staff so you have to be um, very aware of that as well um, you know I, I, I think ultimately if you don't have scale you won't survive in this industry it does come down to that yeah and I think I read that uh, you've never lost a customer that was unhappy with the service or quality yeah I've pulled out of a few for <laughs> for from obvious reasons but uh, I've never had a customer walk away uh, because they were unhappy with our service Louise there's a lot of talk about glass ceilings uh, in the world of business for women um, does it exist for women entrepreneurs is it tougher uh, as a woman trying to make it as an entrepreneur do you think I don't think so. I think when you set up your own business, I think it's probably, um, it's really if you have a family, you know, and I think that anyone setting up their own business, be they male or female, you know, you need an awful lot of support at certain times because you do have to give a lot of commitment at different stages of, of the business, you know, and you really have to be prepared to drop drop everything and, and look after look after the business. So you need, need support that way. Um, I think probably as a woman, when you have your own business, you then have a little bit more flexibility you know there's a little you can organize things a little bit more within reason and um, I certainly have never seen that um, I just have just you know go headlong into every project and don't look whether it's whether it's um, whether there's going to be any advantage or disadvantage uh, for female mm. females so that's my own personal opinion I, I don't see it there are far less women than there are men in terms of I think it's 25% of new businesses are set by, set up by women so mm. there definitely is, is something uh, and is that changing is that gradually changing or I personally think it's confidence you know I think that there is I do think that there's you know innately men are more confident than women that's a statement of fact and I think that some of that is again it's back to kind of the risk you're going to take will I take this risk or not women tend to be more risk averse you know so 
there's I think that um, by championing the people who have been successful, who are just ordinary women or men, um, that that'll bring more entrepreneurs in general. And I think if we as we get more you know, women that are entrepreneurs, we'll definitely see that more are prepared to go out and take the risk and, and start their own business. Leslie, your business is in uh, expansion mode as well. But what about the future? I mean, you've been at it now for nearly 30 years. Do you, do you look at succession? Uh, in your company, yourself and your brother, are there family members, uh, children who perhaps might take on the business down the road? Our kids are around the same age. They're in their early teens. It's probably very, uh, it's 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 quite far away by the time they come out of college if they have any interest in this business. Um, possibly look at, at a trade sale as well in maybe 10 to 15 years, I would imagine. Right. Louise, what's your plan for the business? Um, I think we're looking to grow it in the next couple of years. But yes, we'd like to become, I think it's to become part, it's an opportunity to become part of a bigger uh, organisation. So it would certainly, we would be looking at a Anybody knocking term. on the door at the minute? I'd say there's a few that are interested. Um, uh, but it's, you know, we're, this is year four, but we're very profitable cash generative business. So I think we're going to be attractive to quite a different, uh, quite a few players. So yeah. Noel, I know your business is overseas, but if there was any one thing that the government might be able to do to help entrepreneurs, what would it be in your opinion? Um, here in Ireland, I guess entrepreneurs' relief would certainly be a good starting point. So, what do you mean by that? Well, there's entrepreneurs' relief here in Ireland, but it doesn't stretch as far as it does in the UK. So, in the UK, for example, the tiers and the ceilings are way higher, uh, significantly higher. So, it encourages entrepreneurs to build a business that, you know, is fairly profitable, and then you can get the reward from that if you do go to exit. So, while there is an entrepreneurs' um, relief in play here that the limits and ceilings are very very low on it you know uh, Leslie same question for you if there was one thing that you'd like to see the government do for entrepreneurs what would it be I think there's the potential for just the tax incentives I certainly think keeping the capital gains tax low um, but I think some sort of breaks for entrepreneurs I think the key thing is a lot of entrepreneurs build companies that we d- can't scale them you know so that because you, somebody comes in and buys it out and it then the company is lost to Ireland so I think at that stage when you know the entrepreneur could get some value at a tax efficient way without having to then sell on or, or you know lose the company to Ireland I'd be very sensitive to that I'm based in Waterford in the region so you know the chances are when a company's bought it's going to move so I think there is opportunities just to give the entrepreneurs something back at that stage Mm. and keep them going uh, or even repeating the success you know where you could reinvest some of the capital gains tax into the next company that's really the most obvious thing we've got a lot of good trade sales lately with um, you know entrepreneurs who would quite happily put money back in and they're just about to set up a new company but an awful lot of the money is is in tax so I think it'd be much better multiplier effect on the tax if it was the opportunity to reinvest it back into a new company. Okay, now I'm asking this question of all of our EY nominees. Uh, if you had a top tip for budding entrepreneurs, what would it be? No. Uh, if it was one tip, I think I would say to try and hold on to your shares and your stock in your company for as long as you can. Okay, Leslie? Do more research than you think is necessary. You can never research enough. Uh, a lot of people get uh, wrapped up in an idea because they're enthusiastic about it, but they don't research enough and it often turns out badly. Louise? I think just take the chance and start. If you can get as much advice as possible there'll be so much conflicting advice at the end of the day you're just going to have to make a go and make a go of it and the worst can happen is that you're back where you started. So I think just try. Okay. No, more Leslie Codd and Louise Grubb. Uh, thank you for joining us and good luck on the night.
Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Lucinda Creighton and our EY nominees, Leslie Codd, Louise Grubb and Noel Morn. Declan Connolly produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times Business Feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>